0: and welcome to the podcast titled The Next Trip, Developing the Second Generation of Psychedelics and Their Analogues for Targeted Medical Use. In today's session, we will discuss the preclinical, clinical and regulatory requirements and strategies that need to be considered for second generation psychedelics in development for the targeted indications. The potential of use of psychedelics for the treatment of various CNS indications is currently under active investigation. Some researchers are already examining use of modified chemical structures and analogs for psychedelics in an effort to produce efficacy and mitigate potential side effects of these medications, which we refer to as the second generation of psychedelics. A formal drug development pathway is required when developing a drug for a targeted medical use. Given the nature of psychedelics and their promising therapeutic potential, various strategies can be implemented to explore the efficacy and safety of these novel drugs in both the preclinical and clinical setting. Today's podcast will examine several strategies that second generation psychedelics may utilize to differentiate their pharmacological profile and strategically demonstrate efficacy and safety data that may differentiate from first generation candidates you'll be the first today to hear what the leading industry experts have to say on this rapidly evolving field my name is beatrice setnick and i'm the chief scientific officer at alta sciences i am joined today by a panel of well-known experts in the field of cns drug development and research and i will have each introduce themselves starting with dr david heal hello
1: i'm david heal i'm the one of the executive directors of Developerx limited We are a a CRO which provides consultancy support to the pharmaceutical industry, particularly in the development of CNS active drugs. Uh, My background is in neuroscience. Um, I trained at Oxford University and uh, subsequently joined the pharmaceutical industry in the mid 1980s. And I was responsible for teams that developed drugs in uh, metabolic disorders and schizophrenia. After I left, I uh, joined uh, uh, Renasi, which was a consultancy company we set up, and we were offering uh, laboratory services uh, in the CNS area for the next 18 years. Uh, And in that time, we managed to uh, help clients uh, get uh, 10 additional drugs onto the market. Since uh, 2020, uh, I've been one of the directors of Devalorex, which is a company that I helped found.
0: Great, thank you. Next, we have Dr. Christopher Atterwill.
2: Hello, my name's Christopher Atterwill. I'm a pharmacologist, uh, first of all, and then I became a neurotoxicologist uh, working at Oxford University in the Department of Clinical Pharmacology. Um, I have experience across experimental and applied neurotoxicology and I've worked as a GSK professor of toxicology at a UK university where I helped pioneer um, organotypic in vitro models for looking at in vitro neurotoxic effects. I've also been a director of drug safety at blue chip UK uh, CROs and pharma companies responsible for the pre-clinical development of new molecules. As an aside, I'm a practicing and registered UK pharmacist with experience in clinical pharmacology. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, next we have Dr. Deborah Kelsch. Hello, I'm Dr.
3: Deborah Kelsch. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and a principal investigator located in Kansas, currently working for Alta Sciences. Um, I trained at the University of Kansas Medical Center in the Department of Psychiatry and was on faculty there for 13 years. It was during that time that I started uh, working as a sub-investigator and then also part-time with Alta Sciences, which prior was Vincent Associates doing primarily phase three trials in um, psychiatric conditions. Um, in 2007, I started full-time um, working at Alta Sciences, doing uh, phase one and two trials at that time we had transitioned mostly to that so I do um, I'm the principal investigator really for any trial that involves drugs that affect the central nervous system or special populations like opiate use disorder or recreational drug users um, as would be required in a human abuse liability study
0: So thank you thank you and lastly we have Dr. Denise Milivan.
4: Hello, um, I am Denise Milovan. I am a clinical psychologist, a neuropsychologist with 20 years of experience um, in working with complex uh, neurological and psychiatric conditions. I am also a research scientist um, that has been um, in the field of of phase one clinical trials, looking at the potential for abuse and the impact um, of um, novel molecules on, um, uh, on behavior In cognition uh, since 2007.
0: Great, thank you so much. And thank you for joining today. This podcast today is brought to you in partnership with Alta Sciences, a contract research organization offering early phase drug development services and research, and DevilRx, a consulting team of experts in drug development supporting the pharmaceutical and biotech industry in the development of new drugs to treat psychiatric, neurological, and metabolic disorders. So let's get started with our first topic. First, we'll review the regulatory requirements for developing a CNS active drug and how those requirements specifically relate to the second generation psychedelics, taking into account abuse potential evaluation, the drug scheduling process, and some of the unique attributes that CNS drugs have in development. Uh, So perhaps let's get started with some of the preclinical considerations that a sponsor may need to take into account when developing the second generation psychedelics. And Chris, David, I'd love to hear your comments on that.
1: Well, one of the things which is very, very clear about the uh, second generation psychedelics is they are going to be treated very much uh, as any other CNS active drug. The FDA has made several uh, discussion points about this at various meetings, saying they don't want to set up a unique set of barriers to the development of these particular compounds. Mm. That being said, they do pose certain specific challenges, and I'm sure we're going to get into those in greater detail later in the talk. But in terms of the regulatory package that you'll need to conduct for these molecules. It's the simple package that you would look at for any other safety pharmacology assessment. That means you're going to look at, in the case of drug abuse, you're going to have to conduct a a drug discrimination study, looking at the discriminative signature of the compound. You're going to conduct uh, an intravenous self-administration study, Looking at the reinforcing potential, and you're also going to have to investigate whether the drug has got a potential to cause physical dependence on cessation of repeated dosing. Chris, what do you think about uh, the other issues related to the safety of these drugs preclinically?
2: Yes, in the preclinical development of a new molecule of a second generation type, there are two or three specific toxicological considerations to take into account, and I'm going to cover those a little bit later with some slides. But specific areas, of course, are neurotoxicity, which was uh, observed with the first generation molecules, um, cardiotoxicity, and then other potential toxicities on peripheral systems in the body, which may impact, of course, on what's known as the serotonin syndrome, seen in the clinical Setting. Now, those studies can be to some degree built into the preclinical early studies supporting um, progress to IND and phase one trials. And we'll talk a little bit as well about how uh, we can make bespoke studies and investigative studies to cover those eventualities.
0: And you raise a really good important point, uh, Chris, that's really related to the timing. Uh, So for the audience that uh, may have less experience with drug development, can you uh, describe the types of preclinical data that's generally needed for an IND versus the type of preclinical data related, for example, to abuse or dependence potential that may be collected throughout later on in the drug development process, even in parallel to some of the clinical studies that are conducted?
2: Of course, I mean, David is going to cover in more detail, I think, the uh, abuse potential studies and what is known as the safety pharmacology package for this type of molecule. But in addition to that, to get to that stage, using a traditional preclinical development package, one would need the uh, basic genotoxicity package for the molecule, that's in vivo and in vitro, um, range-finding and acute toxicity studies, that's single dose and also Toxicokinetic studies to build onto those to look at the exposure um, uh, 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 potential of those compounds and the exposure plasma levels to relate to dose. And then, of course, one needs to conduct the one month or 28 day studies in two species. And I'll touch on that later because I think the choice of species is quite important in considering some of those points I mentioned about neurotoxicity and cardiotoxicity also.
0: Great. Thank you. And then once an IND is filed, this enables the critical next step in the drug development process over to the clinical evaluation. And usually we would start with a second generation type of molecule in your first in human studies, where you're evaluating safety and pharmacokinetic exposure in in humans, uh, and then progressing to clinical studies in phase one, two, and three. Uh, So throughout the clinical development program, you'll be doing standard types of studies to evaluate uh, the bioavailability of a formulation, the pharmacokinetics, uh, but you're also looking at very important elements. Of course, efficacy will be coming through later into the phase two studies where you have proof of concept and then larger patient trials that will look at specifically if the drug is effective in the target indication. Uh, but there are also many other important clinical questions that arise. And that those are things related to, you know, if there are perhaps cardiac e- effects and if there's any. QT uh, prolongation. There are dedicated studies that may need to be run The regulators are certainly interested in uh, any kind of drug-drug interactions, particularly cognizant of the type of patient population that the drug is targeted for and what that patient population may be exposed to in terms of concomitant medications. Uh, So certainly from that safety perspective, we're also interested in the human abuse potential studies, as we will get into uh, later in this podcast. Uh, But those types of studies and the abuse potential and dependence potential are integral to the drug scheduling process. Uh, which is really the, uh, the process by which data is reviewed. And ultimately, uh, agencies such as the FDA, in collaboration with other government agencies like the Drug Enforcement Agency, will determine based on data if a drug needs to be further controlled through the Controlled Substances Act. So this is all very important and applicable to psychedelics. Uh, so I will open it up to my colleagues, um, Dr. Millivan, uh, Dr. Kelch, uh, a lot of cognition and some very important questions we ask early on in drug development around the characteristics and pharmacology of CNS active drugs, and I'll have you comment on some thoughts here.
4: Um, certainly, um, I think that uh, if we are um, specifically targeting um, uh, um, um, hallucinogen um, uh, drugs um, and uh, psychedelics in particular, um, one, um, one comment that immediately comes to mind is the um, it, Psychedelic drugs um, have not traditionally been found to have so many uh, physiological effects, Uh, kind of like uh, when we are thinking of of opioids and um, um, respiratory depression, or when we are thinking about um, uh, stimulants and cardiac risks. psychedelics have not necessarily been found to have so many physiological risks but they have been found to have quite um, a significant psychological risk um, in the sense that they have um, uh, they elicit uh, an emotional reaction um, that might um, uh, trigger some some risky behaviors um, and uh, for that particular reason i would think that um, looking at um, the possible impact on emotions and and also on cognition, on the on the safety, for example, to uh, to drive um, um, later on after having um, taken a psychedelic uh, molecule, um, it, that is something that uh, one would have to keep in mind. Mm.
0: Thank you. And Dr. Kelch, from a safety perspective, as you're uh, investigating these types of drugs, particularly early clinical research, what are some of the the medical safety uh, considerations that you think through as you're evaluating these in the clinical setting?
3: Right. So anytime you do a phase one or two study, you know, the subjects are generally in-house and we have lots of supervision. And I think it depends... On whether the population is naive to recreational drugs or has experience. Um, if they're naive, you're kind of you're looking for a sort of events of special interest that might suggest that there's some sort of abuse potential, like somnolence or dizziness. Whereas if you have a, a experienced group, then they can sort of they'll give you other terms. I feel high. I feel drunk. You know. So it's you have to sort of tease out those sort of events. But this. Um, just anticipating, understanding the potential side effects of the drugs, and to be alert to those. And then, if they have some reaction that's um, psychiatric in nature, to lots of reassurance and um, perhaps prolonging their in-house stay until that's resolved, mm-hmm. and just good documentation
0: when developing a second generation psychedelic these are really some novelty is introduced to the molecule whether it's an analog of an existing psychedelic or it's a completely new drug entity Uh, the fda generally will treat these as new chemical entities and therefore the onus will be to develop it and to investigate it like any other new chemical entity, uh, as opposed to uh, being able to supplement some of that information, uh, as in the case with first-generation psychedelics, where there's some published literature and already safety information that's characterized about these drugs. So that's, I think, one important distinction on the regulatory requirements that differ between some of the first-generation, your psilocybins, your MDMA, LSD, where we have some body of literature to show the characteristics of these effects, which can be, to an extent, supplemented as part of the regulatory filing. Uh, But of course, it's very important to identify critical data gaps in order to be able to fulfill the regulatory requirements for a targeted medical intervention. So for our next topic, we will discuss the required preclinical and clinical studies that we need to consider for regulatory submissions, as well as the timing of their conduct. And more specifically, we'll be discussing the methodological considerations that we need to consider, both for the preclinical and clinical studies when we're designing and conducting such studies, particularly as it relates to the new psychedelic drugs.
1: So thanks very much for the introduction, Beatrice. In this slide, what I've uh, put up is a a proposed screening strategy for the non-clinical evaluation of the abuse potential for novel psychedelics. Now, the process is very similar to that for uh, existing CNS-active drugs. When we think about psychedelics, we really are thinking about two separate classes of drugs each with their own uh, individual challenges. So we have the intactogens. These are drugs like MDMA and their congeners. And we have the classic hallucinogens like psilocybin and the other 5-HT2A agonists. And the first real challenge when you're looking at these drugs is actually to determine whether they have hallucinogenic properties. Now, as I'm gonna show you in a minute, we have a couple of ways in which we could do that. Uh, The first is using uh, the head twitch behavioral model in rodents, and this is one of the uh, best tests that we have uh, in order to detect hallucinogenic properties. But also you can use Techniques like drug discrimination in early stage testing in a non-GLP mode. And for example, you could use a 5-HT2A agonist cue drug discrimination using a selective agonist like DOI or DOM uh, to detect whether the compounds that you are developing will actually generalize to that cue. And then we move into the GLP safety pharmacology testing, which includes the drug discrimination testing, looking at the psychoactive signature of the drug. For this, MDMA is an excellent cue for detecting all types of psychedelics. Then you can use, once again in a GLP mode, uh, 5-HT2A agonists, such as DOM or DOB, to look at hallucinogenics. We have the intravenous self-administration test, which looks at the reinforcing or rewarding potential of the drug. And here there are certain factors that need to be taken into account. The selection of the FR schedule, the uh, difficulty that the rat has to offer in terms of work in order to get each uh, drug infusion, You've got to think about things like the test duration. How many sessions are you going to allow for stable responding to occur? And finally, you've got to think about some refinements. And one of the refinements that we're going to talk about is the use of progressive ratios uh, and breakpoints to determine the relative reinforcing effect of a drug.
0: And David, if I may ask, uh, the, in terms of the reinforcing effects, do the psychedelic drugs behave differently in these models compared to some of the classic uh, drugs with known abuse potential like the opioids or the amphetamines, if you could comment on that?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, in terms of reinforcing potential you know, the intactogens like MDMA, and I'll show you uh, some data later on, will perform exactly like, you know, conventional uh, positive reinforcers. They are relatively weak, but they certainly uh, will maintain self-administration in both rats and in primates. The hallucinogens are slightly different, and this is where we get into some of the more philosophical and strategic questions associated with these drugs. Because traditionally, it's always been assumed that the hallucinogens do not maintain self-administration in animals. However, you have to uh, consider that the number of papers that have been published on this topic is relatively few. And the extent to which this topic has been investigated is not in any great depth. If, for example, you think about, well, the hallucinogens are not actually reinforcing, you then have to think about the predictive validity of that result when it comes to human subjects. And this raises the interesting philosophical question because actually, Hallucinogens are not taken for their euphorian properties. Human abusers actually enjoy the mind expanding and mystical experience of hallucinogens, but that's very, very different from the euphoria which is actually elicited by either stimulants or opiates. And for this reason, Actually, that negative result that's been reported for the reinforcing effect of the hallucinogens may actually be the correct, valid translational prediction of their uh, euphorian abuse potential in humans. So let's look at the head twitch behavior. One of the things about this particular model is that. It's often associated with 5-HT drugs. However, if you go back and look at the original literature, and here we're going back to a paper by Korn and Pickering back in 1967, what you can see is that the paper was entitled, A Possible Correlation Between Drug-Induced Hallucinations in Man and a Behavioral Response in Mice. And what you can see here on the left-hand side is that two classical 5-HT2A agonists, LSD and fencyclidine, both induce head twitch responses in mice. However, if you look at the uh, panel on the right, what you can see is that a number of drugs like Yohimbi, Atropine, and hyoscine and these are drugs which are not 5-HT2A agonists, will actually elicit head twitch behavior in animals. And there is uh, a substantial and significant correlation between their ability to produce uh, head twitch behavior in mice and the dose which produces hallucinations in man. So this is a very important model when it comes to looking at hallucinogenic potential across drugs with a wide range of pharmacological actions.
0: And David, uh, one question: Are there other classes of drugs that also elicit the head twitching, or is this something that's unique to these hallucinogenic type properties in this particular model?
1: It seems to be. It seems to be specific to hallucinogenic properties. Uh, all of the drugs which I have ever come across when using this model over the years have been hallucinogens. But for this, it has to be said that uh, it depends what you, uh, what you uh, find depends on where you go looking. And we've not really conducted uh, extensive uh, evaluations of uh, drugs which don't have hallucinogenic properties What you can say is, you know, things like opiates or stimulants don't produce this behavior in animals. And it certainly seems to be common to the hallucinogenic uh, drugs. In terms of the serotonergic hallucinogens, I put up a selection here of drugs which have been shown to produce head twitches in mice or rats. And you can see that There is a very, very uh, good level of correspondence between uh, drugs which are hallucinogenic in in humans and and the eliciting of this uh, behavior in animals. So for 5-HT2A agonists, this is a a really good model in terms of, of looking whether the drugs are hallucinogenic or not. Now, when you move on to the, uh, to the safety pharmacology testing, you're then moving into the GLP testing arena. And here you're gonna think about drug discrimination. And one of the things which is quite interesting is the use of MDMA as a discriminative cue in animals. What makes MDMA uh, particularly interesting is that it will detect uh, as generalizing to the, to the drug discriminative cue, both the intactogens, as shown here on the left-hand side in blue, but also the hallucinogens, uh, as shown in green. So from the point of view of having a, a big safety net for looking at psychedelic drugs, this particular discriminative cue is actually very attractive because it means you can capture or detect uh, the psychedelic properties of both subtypes of drug in this particular area. Now, one of the very, very important issues when dealing with intravenous self-administration is to think about how we are going to adapt this model uh, to look at the reinforcing potential of drugs which uh, are very different from the classical stimulants like cocaine and opiates like heroin. And one of the challenges about these drugs is you have to set the sensitivity of the model according to the reinforcing potential of the drug you're looking at. And Historically, the FDA guidance has indicated that uh, a fixed ratio of 10 uh, for a response requirement, which is 10 lever presses uh, by a rodent on a lever in order to get each drug infusion, is the appropriate, um, uh, is the appropriate response requirement to be used. But what you can see here is that when you are dealing with uh, drugs that are weak reinforcers and I've got MDMA in the middle here, actually, this will only maintain um, reinforcement on very low schedules. And in this case, we train the animals on heroin first and you can see that MDMA is reinforcing across quite a range of doses. But this is on an FR3 schedule. It's not on FR10. And why do we have to do that? Well, the answer comes in the following slide. This shows the breakpoint for reinforcement. And on the left, we can see uh, cocaine, classical schedule to stimulant. And on the right, we've got MDMA. Now, the breakpoint is the maximum number of lever presses that an animal will make in order to get a single injection of the drug. And the more reinforcing the drug is, the bigger the number of lever presses. What you can see on the left is that cocaine is highly reinforcing and it will take at high dose an animal will make between 100 and 150 lever presses in order to get each infusion. But if you look at MDMA on the right, you see a very different picture. Here you can see that the maximum number of lever presses that an animal will make in order to get a drug infusion is down in the 30s. And if you look at the panel on the right, you can see that all of the Drugs which are moderate reinforcers and weak reinforcers have breakpoints of a 30 or less. This means that an FR10 is far too onerous a schedule to use when you're looking at the reinforcing potential of these drugs. And for that reason, what will happen is you will generate false negatives. And this is not. Uh, a situation which is acceptable when you're looking at a major safety signal like abuse potential in these compounds. That's the preclinical work. um, And I think now it's important to think how this is going to pan out in the clinical setting.
0: Thank you, David. And I wonder, before we move on to the clinical considerations and methods, uh, if you might just briefly mention the physical dependency studies and what's known in that with respect to psychedelics and potentially second-generation psychedelics and how those are assayed in the preclinical setting.
1: The physical dependence liability studies are really looking at the consequences of terminating uh, repeat dosing. And it is applicable both in terms of uh, the use of drugs in clinic. We know, for example, that opioids can produce physical dependency when used at clinically effective dose. And we also know that it's very, very important in terms of dose escalation and uh, physical dependence uh, when Uh, these drugs are abused. In general terms, the psychedelics, whether they are the intactogens or the uh, 5-HT2A agonist hallucinogens, do not uh, produce uh, the classical physical dependence liability signs that you see with drugs uh, like opiates or benzodiazepines. However, this will have to be investigated. And the way we do this will be very similar to the methodology that we use for uh, existing CNS drugs. So for example, you need a positive control and here it really doesn't matter whether it's uh, an opiate like morphine or a benzodiazepine like diazepam. The role of that particular drug is simply to act Uh, as an internal validation for the method. What is really important is what the drug itself does. And for this purpose, you generally administer the drug at a plasma exposure level that's similar to the clinical CMAX and a multiple thereof, usually three to five times for a period of 28 days terminate dosing immediately, and then look at the physical, physiological, and behavioral signs of withdrawal, usually over a period of seven days. Mm -hmm. And here you will be looking for key measures like weight loss, reductions in food and water intake, and signs of distress and loss of condition in the animals. So in this regard, If you've got a reasonably comprehensive set of uh, measures that you're looking at, there is no reason to treat these drugs in any different way than uh, current CNS active compounds.
0: Thank you, David. That was a great overview. And now we'll transition over to the clinicals studies that are also become an integral part of the safety evaluation of the psychedelics. Uh, so what you've seen are some of the reinforcing and physical dependency studies that are done on the preclinical setting. This continues into the clinical sphere when we are doing human abuse potential studies, which are essentially dedicated studies in recreational drug users that administer single doses of an investigational drug. And we conduct these studies with a placebo control and also in active control. In these types of studies, we are taking a face-valid population, so one that's experienced presumably in this case with prior psychedelic use or drugs that have psychedelic properties, and uh, we ask a variety of different questions related to the drug-taking experience. The main primary endpoint in these studies are an evaluation on a visual analog scale of how much the subject likes the drug uh, in which they respond. Either they dislike it or really like it, but there are a number of other measures that will evaluate the subjective drug effects. And uh, as we conduct and we have this discussion, uh, we'll be talking about some of the nuances in these methodological studies. We also do conduct the evaluate the physical dependency studies, which oftentimes are included in later phase trials if they there is chronic exposure, and uh, we know that some of these psychedelic drugs are being developed for very acute dosing in the clinical setting, so whether or not they will be administered chronically for periods of at least four weeks uh, will be determined based on their therapeutic approach, Uh, but these scientific and safety questions, needless to say, are important because, uh, as we know, with drug dependence and and abuse, oftentimes things are taken off-label. So let's dive into the human abuse potential study, and I'll open it up to my colleagues, uh, Denise and Deborah to talk about some of the considerations that we will be looking at in terms of the positive controls and some of the measurements in these types of studies when we're evaluating abuse potential in the clinical setting.
4: Thank you, Beatrice, for this question. Um, I think that um, if we are considering the classic um, uh, uh, human abuse potential studies, uh, then the first uh, question that has to be answered in the context of uh, abuse liability is, uh, will um, this particular drug, uh, psychedelic drug, have a drug-liking effects in the moment? Um, and then, of course, what we want to do is we want to to be able to um, take a look um, more comprehensively at the potential for abuse of uh, a novel molecule, in the sense of um, would the um, subjects want to take the drug again, Um, um, would um, they have an overall uh, drug liking, do they experience high effects, Uh, what other kind of um, sensory um, experiences um, might they have that uh, would um, lead them uh, to um, try to take the drug again recreationally um, in the context of um, their um, outside of the uh, clinical trial uh, life and so uh, for uh, for hallucinogen um, molecules. And I think that we have to consider uh, carefully the the type of um, active comparator. Um, David uh, was mentioning the um, uh, certainly using um, an opioid um, um, or um, a benzodiazepine. And I think that, that is um, absolutely the, the way to think about it. Um, another question would be, um, should we consider maybe a second? Um, um, active comparator, um, such as a stimulant, um, um, that is a question to to be answered. Um, And in terms of the, the introduction of pharmacodynamic measures in clinical um, trials, uh, we can we can take maybe a step back, uh, knowing that um, this particular field is developing, um, and maybe we can think about the introduction of some uh, pharmacodynamic measures a little bit earlier in the um, clinical trials, even at uh, the uh, first in human um, level, where we can ask some questions regarding the cognitive aspects um, of of these these drugs and whether or not um, safety should um, also include a component um, of Cognitive performance um, by this I mean should we look maybe at attention should we look maybe at um, the ability to react um, appropriately and fast, um, if um, we have um, been given a hallucinogen um, and so those are questions that can be answered, um, maybe at the level of a single um, um, ascending dose uh, study or a multiple ascending dose study. Um, and that could guide uh, the later um, uh, um, clinical trials like the abuse potential trials. And within that um, abuse potential um, context, uh, what we probably would want to uh, to tap into is the subjective experiences, um, by this I mean, um, how is the drug making me feel do i like it am i experiencing a high am i experiencing good effects um also am i experiencing any negative effects um do i have a bad trip do i have a bad feeling am i am i worried am i anxious uh, those kind of questions uh, could be um part of that a testing battery and then um, combining those questions with more objective measures, those measures would um, tap into attention, into maybe even um, things like facial recognition or um, learning and memory um, and so forth. So those would be the kind of uh, objective uh, questions um, and measures that one could consider. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and you bring up an interesting point, Denise, and that's really around drug liking and the kind of uh, psychedelic experience that subjects may undergo when they're in the clinic or when they're taking these types of drugs. These types of mystical experiences can be overwhelming They can be very positive. They can be spiritual, but they can also be very scary and anxiolytic. And so the the nature, when you ask something very general like drug liking, uh, you know, that's a measure where it highly correlates in a positive direction when you have drugs that classically induce the kind of high in euphoria that David had alluded to earlier. But when you have uh, psychedelics, what you're trying to characterize is the degree of these uh, perceptual changes. Changes that they induce. And sometimes they may or may not be liked, but nonetheless, even if, if it's disliked, there's still notable perceptual changes that are related to the characterization of that molecule and the pharmacological effect. So I think the, the to some degree, we really have to think about what are the most important measures when you're dealing with a psychedelic and is drug liking really precise enough to uh, understand the, the dynamics of a psychedelic experience. So I think that's one question that we'll be working through through human abuse potential testing uh, the other thing is is that uh, because we're testing very high doses uh, oftentimes we're going into super therapeutic ranges uh, you know there's there's the safety considerations to take about think about but there's also the the process of unblinding subjects who are undergoing uh, high doses and are certainly at the dose levels that will induce psychedelic effects will inevitably be unblinded now we oftentimes will that will be the case um, they're still under double-blinded conditions but that that's another element that we need to think about in terms of the uh, the kinds of considerations for the methodological considerations. Uh, I just wanted to mention also one more point. When we're dealing with some of the second generation uh, psychedelics, if sponsors are modifying existing chemicals such as psilocybin or some of the first generation psychedelics, those may be uh, relevant comparators in these types of studies as they're trying to differentiate potentially signals and, and safety and, and human abuse potential uh, in these types of, with these types of second generation So those may be those may serve to be very relevant controls in these types of studies, but given the fact that we are dosing to super therapeutic levels or levels that we know will be inducing these types of psychedelic properties we have to carefully consider the medical management of these patients as well. And Dr. Kelsch, I wondered if you might uh, kind of walk us through what, how the clinic and staff are, are ready for events that may be sometimes uh, psychotic symptoms or other adverse events that are related to these types of CNS drug effects with psychedelics.
3: Well, first of all, you have your, your study populations defined. And I think the more complicated the study, the harder it is to find that particular population. So for example, if we have two comparators, so if we need to use, they have to be able to discriminate between opioids, a benzo and placebo, you now have a much harder qualification. So not only are they going to have to be experienced and those two compounds are now also going to have to have experience using psychedelics and not have had a history of adverse responses. So now you're really limiting your population pool that you, that you start with to those particular individuals. And in many of the studies, it's not that you have to have used it a lot. It may be one lifetime use, and then maybe once in the last 90 days or once in the last year, because some of these compounds are very hard to get. I mean, LSD, PCP, a PCP especially easier around here but psilocybin I mean just we just don't see people reporting that so even though they have this one lifetime experience you're still going to have to give them as recommended in that compound a lot of um, information and sort of what to expect which is sort of different than what you have to do with opioids and benzos and so your informed consent process is going to be very important um, and and surprisingly, like even with you said the unblinding, you would think everybody could differentiate, let's say, ketamine from placebo, but you still have people who who fail. So um, so anytime we have a drug that may cause something like a bad trip like this, you would have to make sure your environment is safe. You know that there's nothing in the about the furniture or the things on the tables that could. Be used to harm them. The windows aren't able to be opened. The um, and that you have supervision. I know the recommendation now is one on one, but in a facility, a phase one facility where we have you know video monitoring and just a lot of you know maybe could other safety officers and paramedics and physicians walking around. Can you possibly make it? not quite one-on-one and just be looking for the person who actually has the bad trip because not everyone's going to be getting that compound. So if you have 20 people in-house, they're not all 20 going to get it. Um, so so just making sure we, everyone understands what the compound can do, what are those potential side effects, and to just be able to rapidly in, in, increase uh, oversight and supervision for whoever's having a bad trip.
0: The next question for today is whether or not there are safety and toxicity concerns which are specific to the next generation of psychedelics.
2: Thank you, Beatrice. Yes, uh, I did allude to the standard preclinical development studies required for an IND for a new psychedelic molecule. Mm -hmm. and in this uh, question, I'm going to address the toxicological considerations for the testing of new second generation psychedelic. Uh, compounds. Historically, there are two or three major concerns around these types of molecules from historical data and testing. Um, in the development of two molecules, uh, dexfenfluoramine as an anti-obesity agent, uh, a couple of major concerns came up Um, The first one was neurotoxicity, which I'm going to address, and the second one was um, cardiotoxicity. So firstly, just looking at the neurotoxicity and the potential for neurotoxicity of psychedelic drugs, it's important when thinking about neurotoxicity to think about adaptive and reversible changes with compounds, in preclinical studies and irreversible neurotoxic and neuropathic damage. That's the loss of neurons. And, and in this case, we're thinking about serotonergic neurons. And really, the, the molecules um, in those studies fell into, a, into two different camps. Um, there were a number of academic groups, so Callahan, Recuart and McCann all studied these molecules. And it was generally <coughs> considered that the Fenfluoramine and dexfenfluoramine type fell into a different category than, to, than the MDMA, methamphetamine, MDA type of molecule in terms of their ability to deplete and or damage serotonergic neurons in the, in the CNS and also potentially in the periphery. The MDA type of molecule and the amphetamine type molecules appeared to produce neurotoxic damage with neuropathy and loss of uh, neurons in the uh, in the forebrain areas to which the RAFA 5-HT neurons project. This was seen by special staining, particularly in primates and mice, um, interestingly, more so than in the, the rat model. And this leads us to the point that the choice of the second species in assessing uh, psychedelic molecules is quite important. There was also, as well as uh, markers for neuronal loss and damage, there were also changes in in things called the astrogliotic response, uh, a phenomenon called astrogliosis where the protein GFAP, uh, which I've listed on the slide, actually increases. This is where the astrocytes, the support cells for the neurons in the brain, as well as the microglia, um, hypertrophy and express this protein, which you can see on the um, slides on the right hand side. If you just look at the extreme left one, you can see in the top there's a vehicle treated animal and in the, in the lower segment, there's an MDMA treated animal. And you can see that in the case of MDMA, there was a, a distinct overexpression of this GFAP marker, which is thought to be one of the best markers for uh, neuronal damage in the CNS. There were also other types of um, changes that, that were occurring in the CNS. For example, with, with MDMA, it was postulated and found that free radicals form, particularly the peroxynitrite free radical, which has the potential to damage neurons in the CNS. Some of the um, studies that were included in these neurotoxicological investigations included the reversibility and the protection against these effects. And and some subsequent studies actually showed that, for example, fluoxetine could protect against the reversible changes seen with phlenfluoramine and dexphemfluramine. But with MDMA, you could only really protect it with, um, for example, antioxidants or in some cases, the um, NMDA receptor antagonists. In terms of the psilocybin LSD class of molecule, there's very little known really about the neurotoxic potential, except that they have the agonist potential and the ability potentially to deplete 5-HT, and thus they do have the potential to possibly cause neurotoxicity in a second generation type molecule. Well, although neurotoxicity didn't lead to the withdrawal of, of um, molecules from development, uh, cardiotoxicity did. And as I said earlier, with dexpenfluoramine, these were withdrawn from development and from the clinic due to serious valvulopathy liability for psychedelic candidates via 5-HT2B receptor overstimulation. A couple of groups, including Roth and Elangbam, showed that these compounds stimulated 5-HT2B receptors and caused a mitogenesis of the valvular interstitial cells, the VIC cells, in several valve populations of the heart, the aortic and mitral and tricuspid valves. And this led to overgrowth of these cells, valvular insufficiency, and retrograde cardiac blood leakage, leading to pulmonary or aortic hypertension. Some drugs such as fenfluramine are still on the market, for example, under the trade name Fintepla, but these have to be monitored. This is used in the treatment of epilepsy, but this has to be monitored quite carefully by echocardiographic monitoring, since it's been shown that a low percentage of individuals do show valvular overgrowth and therefore clinical monitoring is quite, um, quite essential. The third type of potential toxicity of these types of drugs is because there are a plethora of cells in different populations of the body which possess 5-HT receptors. They also possess the protein for serotonin transport which of course is the major site for the target of the earlier generation um, psychedelic molecules as substrates for this protein and some of them also contain the uh, enzymes and proteins of the metabolic machinery of the serotonin process. So three areas for consideration are indeed the immune system because many cells of the immune system have 5-HT receptors and indeed the proteins for serotonin transport and therefore depletion of serotonin, cells of the um, the, the uh, how should I say the cardiovascular system, the platelets and the endothelial cells, and also mast cells, which have a particular 5-HT receptor subtype, and of course contain histamine and 5-HT, and have the potential to be p- depleted, perhaps contributing to things like the serotonergic system sorry, the serotonergic syndrome clinically. Uh, The enterochromaffin cells in the gastric mucosa also have large stores of serotonin. And again, are targets for these types of drugs potentially in a clinical setting leading to adverse reactions. And this has to be considered in this type of um, potential toxicity also. So just to summarize, I think, although we touched upon the, um, how should we say, the regulatory package needed to get an IND for a new um, NCE, for a psychedelic molecule, taking into account the um, issues that I've described, that's neurotoxicity, cardiotoxicity, and other toxicities in peripheral parts of the body. I've just listed on this side some of the strategic objectives that we might have to consider in constructing bespoke studies in the early phases of preclinical development. For example, in the early studies, the um, acute and one month tox studies, one has to consider species because possibly the primate is the most sensitive species, for example, to the MDMA type neurotoxicity. It may also be relevant to the um, cardiac toxicity in terms of the VIC cells in the uh, the valve toxicity that I described. One has to consider p- new biomarkers to extend into the clinical setting to actually assess the potential safety of neurotoxicity, the immune system and the cardiovascular system. Moving down the slide, we have to think about lead optimization or plot screens, preclinical clinical lead optimization screens to fine tune follow-up lead to selection using and investigative toxicological models. And lastly, we have to think about the possibility of designing investigative neurotoxicological models to look at brain chemistry and peripheral chemistry to see if these molecules have the ability to change um, or deplete c- um, serotonin and other monoamines in the CNS or change the levels of these monoamines and serotonin in the systemic circulation all these factors from these bespoke early studies could then be used to integrate into the subchronic and chronic tox studies to support the phase 2 and phase 3 development in the preclinical pipeline okay thank you very much for listening
0: Thank you, Chris. That's really interesting and uh, certainly very thorough in terms of the amount of investigation that needs to be done from a safety toxicity point of view uh, in the preclinical setting. Uh, One idea that came to mind, I was uh, intrigued by some of the antioxidants and some of the neuroprotective effects uh, that can be implemented uh, when you, when you co-administer and I wonder if that might be an approach for uh, drug developers to uh, co-administer or to combine uh, a drug that may have some degree of neurotoxicity with something like an antioxidant, if there's any kind of mitigation of some of this toxicity, um, provided that there is a a therapeutic benefit to these drugs. Um, So I don't know if that's uh, something that would be reasonable based on some of the data that you provided here.
2: I think I think it's that's a very interesting point, um, Beatrice. And in fact, uh, I was involved in some of my academic work with trying to combine um, antioxidant molecules with uh, precursors to dopamine and serotonin, L-dopa, L-tryptophan, for that very reason. And in fact, we we never got further into development with these sort of um, um, studies or molecules. But um, there was a, 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 a how should we say a thought, such as the one you've put over, that if you could combine an antioxidant property with a precursor property or a drug property, a pharmacological property, that might lead to protection, as you say, to the presynaptic part of the neuron, which is susceptible to neurotoxicity.
0: very interesting. And and, um, Chris, are these effects noted uh, upon uh, acute administration or does this require chronic uh, dosing before you start to see some of these indicators of neurotoxicity and some of the other toxicity that you've seen?
2: Okay. Well, the reports, largely from academic work, suggest that actually, it's, if you administer, for example, MDMA intravenously, it only requires a couple of doses spread over, I think, about a week to start seeing the uh, neurotoxic or neuropathic potential of the compound. Um, in terms of things like dexfenfluramine, um, you have to give the the compound for a lot longer. For example, a month or so, um, say orally, um, and then. The early effects are really just, as I say, chronic depletion of 5-HT and possibly other monoamines, which take a long, long time to recover. And there was also a debate about whether there was any associated um, damage to the neurons. But um, there were some studies that suggested there was, and there were others that suggested that there wasn't. But certainly with the um, MDA, MDMA type, um, there was definite damage, as I showed with the GFAP intermediate filament protein, um, the astrocyte reactions, and also um, there are some now specialist stains out for looking at um, neurotoxicity, and I think um, in the early, uh, certainly in the neuropathological part of a, or the path part of a one-month study, one has to consider starting to not only look at brain chemistry, but more specialist stains for um, nerve damage in the the animals, in the two species used.
0: Mm Yes, that's a um, very, very good point, Chris. Thank you very much. And I think as we move into the, the clinical section, a lot of that safety information, a, a lot of key go, no go decisions are, are made based on the safety and efficacy pro- profiles in the preclinical phase as to whether or not those molecules will ever make it into the clinical setting. Uh, once they do, it's important to recognize uh, some of this safety information to continue thoroughly investigating it in the clinical setting, whether we and we may be able to use technologies like neuroimaging for example Uh, it may be relevant to look at um, uh, some of the anatomy uh, brain anatomy as well as uh, very most importantly a lot of the psychiatric um, adverse events that I think need to be monitored uh, for some time so really adequate time to investigate the effects of psychedelic um, drugs as well as the aftermath of the psychedelic drug needs to be incorporated into those Clinical trial designs, uh, and so as we as we talk about this further, a, a little bit about strategy uh, in terms of developing these types of drugs, uh, psychedelics, and particularly the second generation psychedelics. So we see that there some of the first generations are marked with toxicity, uh, safety concerns. Uh, there there are probably these will be very important contrasts and methods to test out in the preclinical setting as you are developing second generation drugs to really determine Is, in fact, the safety profile uh, improved with the second generations? And and, uh, we'll leave it to the panel to discuss um, what would be an ideal second generation drug candidate and how could we strategically study these types of drugs given the pharmacology of the first generations and what might be some strategies that developers might think about as they're making important go-no-go decisions on their second generation molecule with respect to both safety. Uh, abuse potential, uh, as well as potentially even efficacy?
1: Well, I think if I could possibly kick off the discussion, I think one of the things which is going to be very critical is uh, what level of scheduling is going to actually be applied to the current generation of um, psychedelic drugs. I mean, we know, for example, that Jack Henningfield and his colleagues wrote uh, uh, a, 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 an eight-factor analysis uh, evaluating where they thought the risks of psilocybin would place it in terms of scheduling and, and came up with the conclusion that the drug should be placed in a relatively low schedule like Schedule 4. We've yet to see whether if the drug gets approved, whether the FDA and the DEA are gonna agree with that assessment. Because if the drugs get placed in very restrictive scheduling categories, then there is certainly plenty of scope for developing new drugs which have got much lower levels of scheduling. But on the other hand, if they get placed in a relatively low schedule, then in this particular case, You know, you're going to be looking at drugs which are carrying the same kind of restrictions as maybe, you know, the benzodiazepines, which means the abuse potential is very low, but there are probably going to be very strict limits on the duration of treatment uh, uh, and the duration of intervention that you're going to be able to achieve in patients.
0: Yes, absolutely. And just for the benefit of the audience, uh, in the U.S., for example, the drug scheduling process goes from Schedule 1 to Schedule 5, uh, and then there's unscheduled. Scheduled 1 are high abuse potential. They don't have therapeutic benefits, or they have no approved use for medicinal use in the United States, and those will be drugs that will principally be like the psilocybins, the MDMAs, the LSDs. Uh, And then Schedule 2 are the same type of high abuse potential compounds, but these are drugs that have... Approved medical use, so those include drugs like opioids and amphetamines and other classes of drugs that are associated with high abuse potential. As you move from Schedule three to five, uh, they become less and less uh, stronger signals. They become weaker and weaker signals for abuse potential. However, there is still some signal there, and hence they they still fall under the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, And as you go down from a Schedule, let's say two to a five, the prescribing um, restrictions are more loose and less conservative, allowing even for the possibility of over-the-counter medications as you get into a Schedule V, and then certainly unscheduled don't uh, apply to the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, So for these reasons, it becomes very important to fully identify and to evaluate the characteristics of a drug as you're collecting data for that NDA filing for ultimately drug scheduling and approval, and to really understand and put presented in the eight-factor analysis that you, David you mentioned earlier, which is a document and an analysis of that data that the actual the FDA uses in order to make a determination and a recommendation for scheduling, which the ultimately the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, will will come down to. So I think there is uh, it's a it's an important process, and and you're right. I think the 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 primary opportunity is to really thoroughly investigate some of these second generation psychedelics in relation to the first generation to determine how they differentiate and how they might be different in their abuse potential if if and as as Chris has mentioned most importantly also in the safety profiles Uh, do they have less of the toxicity that some of the first generation drugs may carry Uh, and then of course efficacy will be um, uh, played out uh, in the later phase trials to see if there may be any advantages on that so everything is really about risk benefit at the end of the day when we're looking at investigating drugs and determining what their profile looks like and the data that's collected in well-controlled controlled preclinical and clinical studies then makes its way into the labeling claims for that particular product. Uh, And that's very important. So you do need to have well-controlled, well-designed trials, which at the bottom, at the end of the day, will be the most important to support the Regulatory package and enable uh, appropriate labeling that is a uh, that enables a sponsor a developer to differentiate their products from other products in in the marketplace. So, I would like to thank all of our guest panelists today for your time, and I would like to thank the audience for joining us today on this podcast. Uh, this will probably launch a series of more podcasts as we get more into this area of some exciting research and. And uh, we thank you very much for your time today. And thank you for joining. If there are any questions, please do feel free to type these in into the chat or we'll post our email addresses should you have any questions for further follow-up with our team of experts today. Thank you again for joining.